I've always wondered, I uh, was thinking as Matt announced the birthdays this morning and said uh, little Abby Epps turned one. How old are you before you're one? Must be zero, huh? Okay, John chapter 15. We'll uh, read a few verses beginning in verse 18. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Everybody, including Christians, uh, has a desire to be liked by others, to be accepted, to be popular. No one enjoys being disliked or being rejected or being unpopular, do they? I think uh, that's probably one of the strongest motivations that people and society at large can use to get people to do what they want them to do, threaten them with rejection. That's why we're told as believers in Romans 12 too, it says, don't be conformed to this world. And the phrase there in the Greek literally means, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And one of the strongest ways the world can squeeze is by threat of rejection. In essence, the world says to the Christian, keep your mouth shut and we can be friends. But if you start talking about Jesus, and particularly if you start talking about my sin, you're not going to be popular. Isn't that what Jesus said here? In fact, the, 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 the uh, most offensive thing Jesus said right there in verse 22, it's what he had done. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. It's probably one of the most difficult things to talk to someone about their sin. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And yet the Lord Jesus, who was not a sinner, did that. And he expects us to as well. Now, it's, it's for a reason. It's a good thing to tell other people about their sin, isn't it? Yes? Are you glad somebody told you about your sin? Amen. Imagine someone who has cancer and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, listen, you have cancer. And uh, the person gets offended and, and leaves and says, I don't want to talk to that doctor anymore. 
you know, he tells me about my cancer. But the motivation of the doctor, of course, is that you might get treatment and be cured. And so it should be our motivation when we talk to someone about their sin. It's not because we want to let them know how bad they are, but that they might find the cure in Jesus Christ. Right? And that was the motivation of the Lord. So, uh, it's, it's kind of, we're, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, where we have to do, because we have, have a love for people, we have a love for the Lord, something that people don't want us to do, and yet it's for their good. And I hope we'll be encouraged this morning by the chapter that we're going to look at here in Revelation chapter 11, because we're going to see two, they're called witnesses in the Bible, two men who do just that. And these men, I'll tell you, uh, they take on the whole world. Not just a neighbor, you know, or a friend occasionally. And they are not popular, as you'll see. Okay, uh, Revelation 11. Remember we said, we're in a parenthesis now in the book of Revelation. We finished six of the seven trumpets. And uh, there's quite a long parenthesis now, chapters 10 through 15, where in uh, several of the chapters, God is going to kind of focus in on several of the key characters uh, that are active during the Great Tribulation. And we're going to see two of them today. They're two prophets. And I think, uh, I love to see the flow of, of God's Word. And, and we read things like chapter 10. Remember the, the mighty angel and the little scroll that he ate and it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach? And he went on to say there are even more things you're going to have to prophesy. And I connected that with the ministry of Ezekiel, who had a similar experience. Uh, and I really believe that was God, among other things, showing John his calling as an apostle, as a prophet, to speak out. Uh, the word of God is sweet when it comes to us, and yet often it's bitter in that the message that we carry is not a sweet message. Certainly the bad news of the gospel, what we just talked about, is not a sweet message. Certainly the things that John had been seeing must have been very difficult for him to uh, experience and see. And I think that's a good lead-in to today's message and today's passage because that's exactly the job that these two prophets have, is to tell the world about its sin. Uh, we begin in the first two verses looking at a, uh, a vision of the temple, Verse 1, that I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why John measured the temple. It's really not clear. Uh, some think it's because it shows ownership by God, and he's having John measured. Others think that um, he's measuring it in, in the sense of seeing if it comes up to the mark. And of course, at this time, it doesn't. If you remember, our introductory message is on the book of Revelation. Right now, uh, the temple, which will be rebuilt, which will be in Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation, is a place of uh, the worst kind of idolatry you can imagine. That's where the Antichrist sets up the image of himself and the world will worship the Antichrist and the center of worship will be Jerusalem. So it could be that 
God is having John measure the temple and the people that worship there to see if they come up to the standard. And, of course, they fall far short. But uh, I'd like us just to review again now. Uh, People tend to forget the interplay of Scripture on this whole business of the three and a half years. By the way, that's what 42 months is, three and a half years. So we're just going to look, review real quickly three passages. And I want you to notice two things. We're going to cover uh, about a 700 years of prophecy in the Scripture. That is 700 years of writers. And it's going to be amazing to see the incredible consistency in describing what's going on here in Jerusalem at this time. We'll go back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9. To me, four verses that are uh, one of the keys to understanding prophecy in the Bible. Remember now in Revelation 11, God said that the Gentiles would tread uh, the temple and the, and the city around it underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years. Okay? Now, really, that prophecy began back in Daniel 9. And uh, we'll just read verse uh, 27. This is talking about the prince who is to come which is, is a, he's first introduced in verse 26. This is not Jesus. It's the Antichrist. And it says in verse 27, Then he, that is the prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now here we have... Uh, the prophecy of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years, the second half of the final seven years of planet Earth, in seed form, if you will. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Remember, when we studied this, the week is seven years. A week is not seven days, but seven years. Seven prophetic years, years of 360 days each. And in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. The Antichrist is going to stop the... Uh, activities in the temple that the Jewish believers will be carrying on at that time and he will do something bad. That's all we can say at the end of verse 27. Abominations, consummation, desolate. Okay? Is that fairly reasonable? Now it becomes a little clearer when the Lord Jesus brings it up again uh, oh, about 600 years later in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus is teaching them about the end times here. And he talks about that passage in Daniel that we just read in verse 15. And he tells us a little bit more. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's a phrase from Daniel, but listen, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. That's new. Whatever this terrible thing is that's going to be in the temple, it's going to be standing. It's a thing. So what is it starting to sound like? 
what would be something that God would call an abomination of desolation standing in a, in a holy place like that? Yeah, an idol and a statue. That's exactly right. And Jesus is telling the uh, Jews at that time, and of course, really, it's meant for the years of the uh, Jews in the end times. He says, when you see that thing standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Basically, he says, get out of there. Okay? Now, God gives us even a little more light in the book of 2 Thessalonians. About another, oh, 20, 30 years later. 2 Thessalonians, just before Timothy. Here, Paul is writing about the Antichrist. And he describes his activities in the end times. And he says this, verse 4, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Wow. So, it's not just an ordinary statue. It's, it's the uh, Antichrist himself, and it's, a, it's an idol as well, which we, we'll see later in Revelation chapter 13. I guess the idol fills in for the Antichrist when he's not there personally. But this is the consummation of human history. We will come to the point where we're worshipping a man and, in fact, the devil through the man. So, it began a little fuzzy there in Daniel... There's going to be this period of seven years. In the middle of it, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, is going to break this covenant. That is, he's going to stop what was going on in the temple that he permitted up until that point for the first three and a half years. And now he's going to replace the worship in the temple with worship of himself. Can you imagine that? I mean, this sounds so strange to me. I, I could not imagine worshiping a man. But that's what the world is going to come to in those times. He's going to be such a charismatic person, so powerful, so smooth in his words, that he's literally going to awe people to the point that they will worship him. Okay? Now that's the picture. That's what's going on in Jerusalem when God raises up these two prophets. And basically what they're going to do, they're going to be uh, raining on everybody's parade because they're going to be there in Jerusalem speaking against what's going on in the temple. You think the Antichrist is going to like that? You think people that are coming there to worship are going to like that? They're going to, they're going to hate these guys. They are an irritant. But God is using them, first of all, to show people their sin. And you can kind of imagine their message, you know? Uh, keep away from that temple. There is one God. Worship Him. And remember all the stuff that's going around in the world right now. Okay, They're into the Great Tribulation. And their ministry lasts throughout the full three and a half years. We're going to see that. They, uh, they, they minister for 1,260 days. Divide that by three and a half, you get 360. So their ministry coincides with the Great Tribulation. So God is going to have these two gadflies there in Jerusalem uh, warning people uh, that, that right now, the judgment they see going on around them, around the world, is from God. That God is judging the world. That they'd better turn to Christ Jesus right now and be saved before it's too late. Because He's going to come at any time. What a ministry, huh? 
And I'll tell you, they're not going to be popular guys. But God is going to take care of them. Let's look at that now and see. We'll begin reading here in uh, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Very typical of an Old Testament prophet. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. We'll explain that in a minute. And if anyone wants to harm them, and there'd be a lot of them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Wow. Uh, the, the world is not seeing guys like this. Although, in a sense, they have in the form of two men. If you notice their uh, ministry, their uh, power, I guess you'd say there, it should have reminded you of two prophets. First of all, uh, what is, who does this sound like? It says they have power to touch the waters and turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues. Now, who does that remind you of? Right, Moses. How about this one? The, the fire... And uh, praying to shut up the heavens so that no rain falls. Who does that remind you of? Very good. We've got good Bible students here today. Yes, Elijah. I, and I think there's no coincidence there. Now, some people go so far as to say these are Moses and Elijah. No. Listen, they're happier where they are. God is not going to send them back to this scene to experience this three and a half years like this. God doesn't do things like that. But they're Moses and Elijah-like. And it's not surprising that they are, okay? In fact, it, it is very interesting if uh, you think about Elijah, and he's talked about in James, by the way, and, and let's pause and think about these. That remember, there's ordinary men, okay? James 5 tells us that. James 5 talks about Elijah when he's encouraging us to pray, right? And what does he say? He says, Elijah was a, a man of like passions as you and I. He had his sins, you know, he had his desires. He had his failures, his feet of clay. But he loved the Lord. And because of his relationship with God, he had great power. You see, not in and of himself. But because he loved the Lord and he was able to grab hold of the throne of grace, as it were, he could do great things. And it's interesting how long when he prayed that uh, it wouldn't rain in uh, Judah anymore. Remember how long it was? How long was it? Three and a half somethings. It was months. But it's interesting, three and a half again. That, and that phrase is going to come up again here in three and a half days. Okay, so uh, I, one other thing. Okay, I said I'd explain verse 4. You're probably reading that and saying, what? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Actually, this explains something in the Old Testament that really is not quite that clear. And it's in the book of Zechariah. If you've ever read the book of Zechariah, uh, you come away with an expression like, huh? Because it's got some of the most puzzling images in it. This picture, it's a picture of two olive trees with a lampstand in the middle. And the branches are connected to the uh, cups at the end of the lampstand and oil is flowing into it. What's it mean? After that, we have a vision of a flying scroll. After that, there's a woman in a basket. And that's not all. 
Read it sometime. Some of them are kind of explained. But this explains the vision of the olive trees and the lampstands. And it's really connected with verse 3. I'll think it through with you. What did it say in verse 3? He's reminding us about what I said about Elijah. God says, and I will give power to my two witnesses. He's reminding John and us that their power to do these great things doesn't come from them. It comes from God. Now, the uh, olive trees with the oil, the olive oil, right? You get oil from olives. Okay, that's so that some, some of the uh, ladies are nodding at me like, yeah, what's wrong with you, Bellas? I'm not that big of a cook. But yeah, olive oil was flowing from the trees into the lampstand. That's what they burned, oil. Okay? And it's a picture, oil in the Bible, almost invariably, is a picture of what? Well, you guys are really uh, on the ball today. That's right. The Holy Spirit. And it's a beautiful picture of God empowering his prophets. And notice when the lampstand, which is a light, by the way, to the world, these guys are lights, we should be lights like Jesus when we tell the world about their sin, but then about Jesus and his solution for their sin. We're lights. So lampstands are pictures of the prophets. The uh, trees with the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And it's so beautiful because in this case, you don't have to have someone going around every day and filling their little oil pots when they run dry. There's a living tree, two of them, connected with a constant vital flow that never ends. Isn't that beautiful? A picture of the constant ministry of the Holy Spirit empowering his people. Beautiful, beautiful picture. So, yeah, that, that verse makes a lot of sense right there. It really is a, a beautiful graphic, graphical picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people and in particular in the lives of these men as they serve the Lord. Now, you don't want to mess with these guys. You saw that in verse 5. It says, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And there's no need to try to uh, spiritualize this. You wouldn't believe the amount of uh, spiritualization I've seen reading commentaries in the book of Revelation. When they see anything that uh, wouldn't happen naturally, they immediately say, oh, that's symbolic. Because they can't imagine God doing anything outside of what they're used to. Which is really sad. The whole point of this seven years, particularly the last three and a half, in the experience of the earth, is to make it so plain that it's God who is acting here. You understand? And so when you see things like this, say, yeah, unless it says it was like or it was as, those two, if those two words aren't there, then take it literally, brothers and sisters. Okay? This is another case of God confirming that it is Him who is doing it. You understand? So that the world has no excuse. They had no excuse with these locusts coming, you know, that sting. There's never been a locust like that. They had no uh, excuse when two comets or meteors hit the earth and did great damage consecutively. And we could go on and on. But God is making it so clear that it is Him who is at work here. Okay, so... You can imagine, and now, by the way, it says at the end there, they, they do these plagues as often as they desire. Don't worry, I mean, they're, they're not going to play, play around. You see, they're godly men. And God has simply given them this power, and they would only do this to, with God, judge the earth, with the whole point of waking the earth up. 
That's the purpose of these last times and the judgments that are taking place. Remember the picture I gave you of the wine press last week? You know, Jesus is the one who treads out the uh, wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. We're getting down to the dregs now. Not many people are getting saved as you get to the end until finally when Jesus comes back visibly in glory, you've got your last person who is going to be saved is saved. Because after that, nobody's going to be saved. They're all going to be taken away into judgment. And so like he's squeezing out, you know, the last few people to be saved. And so that's the purpose of using these powers that God gave them to bring those few to repentance. Do whatever it takes. Remember too, we keep forgetting this, it's not popular to be a Christian in these times. Now we haven't read up on that much yet. That's going to come later in chapter 13. But the odds are you're going to get killed if you're a believer in this time. Because the Antichrist will only accept worship, worship to himself. He'll have no rival. So you can imagine. I'll tell you, when somebody... Let's picture yourself coming to Jerusalem to worship the Antichrist in the temple. And you hear these guys' message. And you begin to think about it. Maybe it's true. And you think about what's it going to cost if I trust Christ and refuse to worship the Antichrist. Well, the penalty is death. You talk about counting the cost to become a believer. Maybe you're here today and, and you've... Uh, put off coming to Jesus Christ. <laughs> now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. You don't want to wait until it's like this. Boy, it's certain death. Okay, three and a half uh, months, 1260 days, these guys minister. Verse 7, Now when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Well, this section began with a very important phrase. I want you to notice it says, now, when they finish their testimony. That's very important. You see, God did not allow them to be touched as long as they had something to do for God. And it wasn't until they had completed their service for Him that He then permitted them to be killed. And it's, and it's just a reassurance, brothers, you've heard it before, and sisters. As long as we're in God's will and we're serving Him, we're immortal until we fulfill the ministry that He has for us to do. Isn't that good? The Lord is sovereign and He protected these men for three and a half years. Now, he's going to, you wonder, well, why did He even let them be killed at all? Where are you going to see? God is going to use it to, to speak to the earth again. Now, uh, the one who kills them is, is the one that's called the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Uh, some of you may think, oh, that's obviously the devil. Others may say, well, that's obviously the Antichrist. And it's not clear. It, it could be either one of them. Later in chapter 13, we're going to see two other beasts, the beast coming out of the sea and the beast from the land. Now, it's, it seems like one of them is the Antichrist and the other is like a priest-like figure who orchestrates the worship of the Antichrist. And if this were indeed the devil, then it would really complete an unholy uh, Trinity, if you will. So it may well be the devil 
working either directly or through the agency of a person or through the Antichrist. The point is, uh, one of the enemies of God, uh, that's who this beast has to be, finally gets the hand on these guys, not because uh, he's better or stronger or finds a chink in their armor, but because God permits it. Not until then. He permits it for a reason. Notice the treatment, by the way. Uh, I remember when the Marines went into Somalia and they killed a, uh, uh, a Marine there. I don't know if you remember that. And they drug his body to the streets and they had it on the cameras and people stared at it. It's, it's a very cruel and barbaric thing to do. And here, the whole world will join in. They are so fed up with these guys. Can you imagine three and a half years of living with this kind of torment at the hands of these guys? And so when they finally get killed, the, the world literally rejoices. It says they make merry. In fact, it, this is incredible. They exchange gifts. It's like Christmas. That's incredible. Can you imagine getting a gift, you know, with a little card? Hallelujah. The prophets are dead. You know, here's a gift from me to you. That's what it's going to be like. Think about that. As we read these things and, and the way people behave, can you imagine what it's going to be like to live in this world? And the people, by the way, are not going to be a different species from you and me. It's just that God has removed the restrainer, remember. Right now, he is holding down evil like you wouldn't understand. And when he stops repressing evil and not permitting people to do all the evil they would normally do, including you and me, wow, this world is going to be a different place. And that's the kind of place it's going to be. It's interesting, by the way, that John wrote this in 90 AD, saying the whole world would see them. Think about that. Um, it says, 9, Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. One could not understand how that could have happened. But now today, with TV, CNN, right? Uh, my wife doesn't watch the news anymore. She logs into CNN.com. You know, just uh, at, at a few clicks, there you go. There's the latest news with pictures and everything. So uh, this is written for today, boy. People are going to log into their browsers to check out and make sure these guys are dead. And there's going to be the picture of their bodies right there in the streets of Jerusalem, dead, lying dead. Maybe they'll come the next day. Maybe they thought yesterday was a dream. Second day they'll come in, you know. Whew, they're still there. They're dead. Good. We don't have to worry about those guys anymore. Third day, yeah. But then, on the, third, on the fourth day, verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, listen to this, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Can you imagine that? And great fear, no kidding, fell on those who saw them. You see, that was a hollow victory. When they see the power of God, then perhaps they might fear God enough to turn from their sins. Fear does not equal repentance. We can be sorry for, for our sin. We can fear what we've done and its, and its consequences. But still, that doesn't equal repentance. But you're a step on the way. And imagine how the world, you know, imagine logging in on your web browser the, the fourth day and you see these guys stand, if you can see them in the act of standing up after lying dead for three and a half days. Man. And then, verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. 
And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. God made sure they saw it. Wow. Just like the ascension of the Lord Jesus up into a cloud taken out of sight. You see, God is sovereign. God is the omnipotent one. And he's demonstrating it again. And on top of that, in case people didn't get the message, verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. There'll be a great earthquake to hit Jerusalem right around this time. In the earthquake, 7,000 men were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And don't read that as they got saved. It just means they finally acknowledged that God was greater than them. But uh, in most cases, they didn't, they didn't turn to him, as we see from the rest of Revelation. Okay, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Remember, we saw the, the three woes announced in the trumpets. They were the final three trumpets. The third woe is the third trumpet. Or uh, the seventh trumpet is the third in the series, starting with the fifth one. And we're going to read about that in uh, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. You wonder what happened to that trumpet. Here it is, finally. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Praise God. How many here have heard Handel's Messiah? Okay, you should recognize that verse. That's the, that's the uh, basis for the Hallelujah Chorus. And it brings a chill down my spine every time I hear that. And there's just no way we can read this verse and really catch the full rejoicing, relief, uh, praise, thanksgiving that is in the hearts of the ones singing this song. After so long, imagine way back in the Garden of Eden, God said that He will send someone to crush the serpent's head. Way back then, he promised someone that was coming. And as, you, and as we went through prophecy and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the rest, became clear that this one was coming to the nation of Israel and he was going to be a Messiah and he was going to rule the earth. And he came, but praise God, he didn't rule the earth the first time. He died for our sins. And so that right place of his on the throne was deferred and he didn't take the throne then. And the earth has continued in sin for 2,000 years since then. No wonder it says in Romans that creation literally is groaning, waiting for that day. It's overdue, let me tell you. And when it comes, there's going to be such a shout of rejoicing that's never been seen before. At last, the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And He will take His throne. And it's at this point that the millennial reign will begin. Now, this is one of the reasons uh, that it really seems that the seven bowls are contained within the seven trumpets. Because we're talking really about the end of the tribulation now and the return of Jesus Christ. And yet the bowls haven't even been described yet. And, and so I said another reason last week, but we'll drop them every once in a while. It really seems clear that those last seven judgments just go bang, 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 bang. Like, I don't know, within hours or days. Very brief time. And then the Lord Jesus takes up his rule. Well, the worship continues in verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. Now, just pause and think about the hollow celebrating that went on in verse 10 and compare the two. You know, the world can have its temporary joys, but uh, as God says in Hebrews, it's just the pleasures of sin for a season. 
It's not going to last. It's hollow. It's empty. And the rejoicing that was going on there, the supposed triumph over God and his men, God permitted it. And he has the final say. And the rejoicing that's going on in 15, 16, and 17, and 18 is permanent. In fact, it's a song that's not going to ever end. Verse 17, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Now notice something. Back in verse 15, who did it say is reigning? Who are they talking to there? Study it there. That's right. Lord Jesus is reigning. And in verse uh, 17, it says the Lord God Almighty is reigning. There's another example where Jesus is shown to be God. The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. As we read this, I should remind you of Psalm 2. Verse 18, by the way. It says, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. Really, those are the same words. It says, the nations were angry and you were angry. And there's irony intended in that phrase there. Because the the anger of the nations, the anger of individuals, is fruitless. It's powerless. It's impotent. God's anger, which by the way, you know, it's just thing you've read about so far. But it's going to come. When the patience of God runs out, the anger of God is going to be revealed the wrath of God. And it's not impotent. It's infinite. It's exact. It's just. It's righteous. And it'll be demonstrated against the world for these three and a half years. And after that, all who haven't come to Christ, it'll be uh, demonstrated against them for their sin. We'll close with looking at Psalm 2. Just uh, There's so much parallel here. I, I think that... Um, Whoever wrote this song, might have been the Lord himself, I don't know, was thinking of Psalm 2. Here we are, David is writing, oh, eight, nine hundred years before Jesus. And it's like he read Revelation before he wrote this psalm. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Doesn't that sound like, Revel- like Revelation and the tribulation? But verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And here's the final verdict. Verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Period. There it is. Notice that's past tense, by the way. And we didn't see it actually happening until uh, that song there in Revelation 11. At the end of the tribulation, when the Lord Jesus does finally take the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule over the earth. And yet here God speaks to David and says, I have, past tense, it's as good as done, set my king 
on my holy hill of Zion. Isn't that good? I'll tell you, you can't resist God. You can't fight God. He, he turns now to the Son. This is a beautiful passage. He calls uh, this one, the Messiah, calls him Son. They didn't know that. The Jews didn't know that. But here was a passage right here where it clearly says that the Messiah was going to be God's Son. He uses the word twice. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. You know that verse is quoted in Hebrews referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? 800 years before Jesus. There it is. Jesus, the Messiah, God's Son, right there. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. We saw that in Revelation. He, he received them and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, he turns to the uh, uh, rulers of the earth again and certainly the inhabitants as well. And he, he warns them and he instructs them. He says, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Listen to this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. We, when his wrath is kindled in Revelation, it's still not the full brunt of it. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Kiss the son right now. What a contrast. You've got two pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ here. You can kiss him now, and you should. You should just, pardon the expression, love him to pieces because of what he's done. He came, he, he could have ruled, he should have ruled, he should have just done away with the earth then, but instead he came and he died for your sins. Boy, that's worth loving him for, huh? If not, you have the other picture here, his anger. He's waited, he's waited 2,000 years. I can't imagine anybody being that patient, but he can't wait forever. And then his anger is going to be revealed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are stirred up in ourselves as we read this passage of Revelation, Lord, and we see the outburst of praise when finally, at last, you take your rightful place. Lord, it stirs us up. We, we long for that day. We want to join in with that song. Lord, make it soon. Our only burden would be for anyone here who has not trusted you yet, who is still resisting. Oh, Lord, break their hearts before you break them. We pray they might come to Christ today and flee the wrath to come, the only hiding place, the heart of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.